Welcome, kitties, to another edition of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And here we are in our second week of our anthology month. I picked the movie this week. Uh, we've been talking about doing this theme for a long time, and every time we've talked about it, there's always been one movie on my list that I wanted to do, and that movie is Creepshow 2 from yeah. 1987. Now, we could have gone with Creepshow 1. Creepshow 1 is a good movie. I, I like it a lot. Um, but Creepshow 2 is a movie that I grew up on. Uh, I saw it when I was little, and uh, I saw it well before I saw Creepshow 1. I don't think I saw Creepshow 1 until I was an adult. And I just always, as a kid, I really liked this movie. There were there was one segment in particular that always did and still does creep me out. And so I decided to buck tradition and skip the first one, go straight to the second one. The horror. <laughs> the horror. <laughs> and here we are. Creepshow is basically George Romero and Stephen King's answer to Tales from the Crypt. Uh, in fact, initially they had considered remaking that film, but eventually they decided to go with original shorts of their own. The stories are written or at least outlined by Stephen King. The screenplay uh, is by Romero, and this movie is directed by uh, Michael Gornick. Like I said, I grew up with it. I, I have no idea when I saw it first, but I think I was very young, and I don't remember if it played on TV a lot. We had HBO. Maybe it played on HBO. I don't know, but I've seen this movie many, many times. Um, and it's also one that I just kind of go to if I can't find anything else to watch and I just want to put on something to have in the background. I, I love it. So what's your history with it? Well, I um, I saw Creepshow 1 first. I saw Creepshow 1 when I was a, a younger kid. That being said, I owned Creepshow 2 on videotape. And so I think it was either shortly before high school, I think it was starting maybe in middle school, or maybe it was during my high school years, um, that Creepshow 2 was a regular watch for me. Uh, so we had Creepshow 2 in quite a bit. And so just like you, I'm definitely more familiar with Creepshow 2 in the memory banks <laughs> than I am with Cre the first Creepshow. I've seen it many, many more times. I was actually shocked to find out how old this movie was. I did not think it was 1987. I thought for sure this was like 91, 92 perhaps. But you don't you wouldn't know it. I mean it it's more or less uh holds up today, I think. Really? Yes. Yeah. There's not a single episode in here that feels dated in any way. And so uh it does really kind of stand the test of time in 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 that way. I, and that was my shocker when watching this. Uh, this time around. So I, I hadn't seen it for, gosh, probably a decade or two. <laughs> so I was really happy to revisit it this time. And I do forgive you for watching the second one ahead of the first one, even though I will frankly admit that the first one is my favorite. I think the first one is a little more fun. This one's fun. Don't get me wrong. I think the first one's a little more fun, a little more playful, has more stories. And um, for some reason, the stories in the first one really hit me a lot harder than they do in, in the second one, so. Well, I think that, I think they both, e each of them has three stories, I think. Uh, both no. of them were, no? Is that not no, true? No, the first one has five. Oh, see, and I thought that uh, they both intended to have five and only ended up with three. But anyway, this one was, five stories were considered, but only three were filmed and we only get three. I think that all three of them uh, are good. This, you know, it is an anthology film and much like Tales from the Crypt, which we did last week, uh, there's a wraparound story and I, I don't know, I just, there's so many charming things about this movie. It opens on a dark, wet street, I don't know, it looks like small town America, but it's dreary and um, you see this uh, big truck coming down the street being followed by um, a kid, a little kid on a bike. The truck stops in front of this general store, I guess. And this scary guy, uh, the creep, uh, Tom Savini in some major prosthetics, <laughs> is yeah. yeah is delivering these packages of Creepshow comics, and this little boy Billy is is patiently waiting. The creep 
kind of teases him and says, I've never seen anyone so impatient, Billy, as if your life depended on getting the first copy off the presses. <laughs> he throws the package down. And then the movie switches from live action to cartoon, which I just, I, I love. And, and like, it's old school animation um mm. like scooby-doo or or something like that Cheap tv animation yeah <laughs> yeah but it's fun and mm-hmm. uh, then the 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 opening credits roll over comic cells uh which actually preview all three of the stories from the movie um and then the creep addresses us directly welcome kitties to another edition of creep show um and it really it jumps right into the first story um which is old chief woodenhead (laughs) (laughs) when this first opened up because i you know I, i knew the story was coming and i knew it was the first one and i was thinking gosh i wonder how dated this is gonna be i wonder how offensive this story is going to turn out to be, you know, in 2022. And I was kind of surprised to find out, I mean, I think in my opinion, no. I don't think it's a, you know, even though we're dealing with the Native Americans here, um, I don't think that the story is as uh, offensive as I thought it might be towards Native Americans. No, it's not. It doesn't paint Native Americans in a bad light at all not at all you know what what surprised me watching it this time around was how sweet this story is in the beginning yes it and and even like the score is very i don't even know how to describe it 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 feels more like an after school special kind of yeah in tone very uh sweeping and dramatic for you know actually a very small story right but um, yeah, but it, it it goes in lots of places. It's not your typical horror score where it's just all synth and and spooky, right? There are these moments of niceness to it. I, it, it is. Kind of, it kind of reminded me a little bit of. I remember being similarly shocked by the the intro score on uh, House and Sorority Row, and just how sweeping and and orchestral that score was, and it just puts you in a happy place at the beginning of this horror movie. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's it's simple. It feels like a touching small town story, and that's kind of what it is. There's this. It, it's a very very small um, town. Uh, I, I guess at one point it was kind of an up and coming town, but I don't know. Things haven't gone well, and lots of people have moved away, and there's just not a lot of people left. And the general store is run by a man named Ray, played by George Kennedy. Most of the actors in this movie have had prolific careers. Yeah. Some of them were already really well established when they made this movie. Some of them went on. But, like, you you look at the cast list and and you look at their filmographies, and so many of these actors uh, have worked forever and are still working um they may not be a-list celebrities but they are working actors um george kennedy is very recognizable he was uh, in airport he was in the naked gun movies sweet old guy and when we find him he's uh, touching up the war paint on like the cigar store indian outside his shop yeah. His wife, Martha, who's played by Dorothy L'Amour, kind of a starlet of the silver screen starting, I think, in the 30s or 40s and um, worked all of her life. This was actually her last film. She wants Ray to close the store down because the town is dying. And she says, you know, he's he did everything he could for this community and it's time for him to take time for himself and his grandkids and that type of stuff. But he wants to hang on to it. This man shows up, this Native American man, Ben White Moon, and he gives Ray this packet full of 
tribal jewels. And he says, these are all of my people's most treasured heirlooms uh, or whatever. And he says, we want you to hold these until our debt is repaid to you. Um, And, you know, if our debt is not repaid to you in two years then these things will belong to you. And Ray is such a sweet guy. He doesn't want to take it. He tries to give it back, but White Moon says that it's a matter of pride, that if he gives it back, that that puts them at the status of beggars, and and that's shameful for them. So Ray keeps it and says that he'll guard it with his life. And, you know, even before this, you know, there's this nice moment where Ray and Martha are talking about the town and how the town used to be so alive and how it's just sort of dead now. But whereas Martha's like, Ray, it's been four days since you've had a cash paying customer. It's been four weeks since anyone has given you any money on a credit account. If you keep supporting these people... We won't have anything to leave to the grandchildren, except good intentions. And he's just cheerful, like, you know, I want to help this town. You know, this store put our kids through school. You know, it gave us savings. It gave us a home. And uh, I want to give back to this community that, that now is struggling. And, and I, I felt like, you know, like that's such a relatable theme, right? I yeah. mean, even today, you know, we have this same the same sense that maybe in some ways things aren't the way they used to be and and you're always looking back on sort of the glory days and sometimes we look back on it with resentment but this guy looks back on it with hope that there's going to be more in the future and so Martha in a very gentle way is sort of telling Ray you know don't be such a sucker you got to kind of put your foot down at some point and it's right after this conversation that he comes in and changes her mind. Uh-huh. She said, wow, Ben White Moon, you know, I, I was just telling Ray that he's too kind and too generous, but you and your people have shown me that actually, you know, you have a lot of integrity and you've sort of proven me wrong. And so that's a nice little turn in the story. You know, it just makes you love these people. Very right. It, right. It is nice almost to the point of being saccharine, but yeah. especially George Kennedy, I think, just plays this kind older gentleman so well that you kind of forgive the almost saccharine nature of it and just think wow you know this is really sweet <laughs> like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these these are good kind decent people ben the the native american man also seems kind and honorable and he wants to do the right thing and it just seems like up to this point everybody wants to do the right thing and do right by one another. Um, And it's just, it's really nice, which sets it up nice then for the very swift change in tone. Um, Because as soon as, as soon as Ben leaves, um, the older couple goes back into their store. And it's night all of a sudden. (laughs) Right. It is night all of a sudden. And there are three thugs in there, one of them being Sam White Moon, who is Ben's nephew, uh, so also a Native American man, not played by a Native American actor. That would probably be different today. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by a Caucasian actor, you know, uh, I don't know if they darkened his skin, but he's got this long black hair, presumably a wig, and they're robbing the store. And all of a sudden, like you said, it is night all of a sudden, and it does just take this dark tone. And one of the things, you know, having seen this movie since I was a kid and having seen it so many times, I've never, and this happens a lot when we prepare for a show. You know, I sit down to watch these movies and I'm watching very closely and I'm trying to watch with a critical eye. And so I notice things that I hadn't noticed before. And one of the things that I noticed this time around that I really, really appreciated is that the cinematography is such that each shot looks like a cell from a comic book. Like, it's, it's framed like a comic book cell. Mm. The lighting... <laughs> Very dramatic. It, it is, and it looks like an illustration. Like, you, it looks like a comic book come to life. Yes. And just the composition, the, the, the composition of the scenes where you'll see, um, 
you know, a person when we first see Sam Whitemoon, he he is in the center of the frame. He's lit kind of so that shadow falls over the top of his face and it's just him right there in the center. Then there's another shot later on where I think all if not most if not all of the characters are in frame and one is very near the camera and one is you know a few feet back and then you've got other characters back in the back you know kind of out of focus it it looks like an illustration and I was just really impressed with that attention to detail because these are supposed to be based on comics they're not really I mean these are original stories Um, but uh, it looks really cool and they're there to rob the store and they're just awful like yeah you know just terrible i mean uh sam is just cruel just nasty and cruel the other two are kind of buffoons you know just your typical thugs um yeah but sam is just a jerk and they're robbing the store, and Sam is admiring his looks in uh, – there's a photo booth, and he goes in, and he's, like, talking about how good-looking he is, and he's going to be a movie star, and with hair like this, he'll be getting, you know, roles and women, and that's his big dream. And to be fair, he is – a very attractive man. He too, he I didn't write down his name, but he too went on to play very attractive men in many things. <laughs> Still working. <laughs> Holt McCallany, yeah. I, I was surprised to find out that he wasn't Native American. I always, just as a kid, always assumed he was. So he 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 passes well in the movie. Like you said, I feel like there's some makeup work going on there. But uh, yeah, if you go to his IMDb profile, right? I mean, it's McCallany. He's clearly Irish <laughs> somewhere. Right. Was well, and he New has York striking City. blue eyes, which mm-hmm. I think is atypical for Native Americans. That's but... true. That's true. So, and and they're just awful. Like, they're, they're, they're destroying the store unnecessarily. I mean, they're stealing, but they're also just destroying the store unnecessarily. And um, you can tell that Ray is trying to hide this satchel that uh, he's just been given. Mm -hmm. They hand over what little money they have, um, but then Sam demands the jewels. Um, And and Ray's trying to talk him out of it. He's like, Sam, these aren't even mine. They belong to your people. You're, You're stealing from your own people. But Sam doesn't care. And he's holding his shotgun um at Martha's side threatening her trying to get Ray to hand over the jewels and then he shoots her I think accidentally I don't think that he meant to shoot her in this moment I think that his finger just slipped on the trigger and she is shot through the side and you see blood coming out from under her dress and she falls over And then, I guess, maybe it's a point of no return, he just lifts up his rifle and shoots Ray, too. And they go outside, and he he shoots up the store, and he shoots the uh, Chief Woodenhead, the statue, and they leave. And as soon as they leave, you see the statue come to life. Now, the statue... There are some great behind-the-scenes clips, uh, whatever you call them, yeah, it's on It's like a featurette. I think, I think it was probably on uh, on the DVD or something. A DVD like release, that, right. Yeah. And they detail, you know, all of the effects here. And, and they did, they had a prop, they had a statue prop, but then they also had a guy in a suit. And, and the way that they made the suit is is really uh, interesting. And, and the guy in the suit was a mime. And so this is a guy that studied movement, uh, and and his movement is great. I mean, he moves like a statue. His movement's kind of limited. It's it's very intentional. But he comes to life, and you know that... uh, I mean, you know where it's going, and and that's exactly where it goes. And it, it actually happens very quickly. It does. The three guys decide that they're gonna split up just for long enough to go home and pack up their stuff before they get back together and head out to L.A., that's their plan. But Chief Woodenhead has other plans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, I always imagined in the watching of this as a kid that I was seeing some kind of shoddy special effects work when I saw 
There are moments that are close up on the statue where the statue has some slight movement. I thought as a kid, oh God, the guy acting like the statue didn't stand still enough or they lingered a little too long on that shot and let some movement slip through. But actually, they have a separate actual statue yeah. for this. It's what he's painting up in the beginning. They clearly have it. They have it. So it was an actual choice for early on to project this statue moves. It can move, and it, and it might. Ben Whitemoon, when he comes into the store, kind of looks up at the chief, and you can kind of see a slight movement. He kind of does a double take. When these kids exit, uh, you can see it slightly frown. A little bit, like its eyebrows come down. And, uh, and of course, as soon as they're gone in the car, the music starts and the statue comes to life, basically, in this very slow thing. As they're leaving, Sam takes a shot with his shotgun at the statue and kind of misses and knocks over a can of that war paint, that red war paint. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they speed away... Uh, the statue slowly kind of lifts its foot, it moves its arm, it sets down its hatchet, puts its fingers in that paint, and puts its own war paint on, and then looks up to the sky, opens its eyes and its mouth, and just lets out a yell. It's just an otherworldly yell, and it, it looks super scary. And then, like you said, yeah, each one of them go back to their place, and uh, Fatso is in his trailer, and he's watching um, a TV show. The Cisco Kid. And so that's playing in the background. He sits down to watch that, and he gets an arrow through his head and through his chest a couple times. The rich boy, <laughs> which is what Sam calls him, is trying to sneak out of his uh, his parents' place, I guess, where he lives. And as he goes into the garage, he sees that his car has been smashed up. And that's the car they're they're going to get away in. And uh, this is all done in shadow. I loved that. It, yeah, it's done in silhouette. You see the silhouette of the Indian statue, and it raises its hatchet, and the hatchet comes down, and the bl- you see blood spray on the wall. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten all these little details, and I really liked them. I just thought they were so charming. It's charming, you know. It's got some variety. And like you said, you know, comic books, the, the good ones, you know, try to find these different ways of presenting things, right? And, and, and very dramatic angles and dramatic. Capture as much as you can in one frame. And that very effectively does that, right? Mm-hmm. Then we're back outside. And as the garage door lowers on the scene, we see that the chief is already outside because we see another shadow of him on the garage door as it comes down. It's, and then he walks away. It's, it's so cool, right? And it also mm-hmm. gets around... The cheesiness, maybe. If if you show too much of this statue walking around, yeah. it has the potential to look cheesy. And so these first two kills, they do a pretty good job of kind of holding back the statue a little bit. Yeah. We don't even see him with the arrows. Right. Uh, and then we just see his shadow with this one. Uh, but then when Sam comes home and uh, he's staring at himself in the mirror, he's talking about how he's going to go to Hollywood and his hair is going to save him, blah, blah, blah. He, he hears a noise, he gets ready to go, and Chief Woodenhead breaks in the front door. And Sam's got his gun, and he backs into a bathroom like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you think the Chief is going to come bursting through the door, but he surprises him by coming through the wall of the bathroom. And then it's this great overhead shot mm-hmm. where you see Sam get pulled through this hole in the wall, and then the camera swoops you know, through the wall and into the other room still overhead, and you see the Chief holding him by the hair. He raises his hatchet and comes down, and you just know what's going down, right? Yep. <laughs> ben, yeah, wakes up in the morning. Um, he he seems like, it seems like something kind of startles him awake. And when he wakes up, he finds his people's satchel in his bed with him. So he races over to the store where the statue has returned and is exactly where it's supposed to be, but now it is holding Sam's scalp with his long, beautiful hair. And and Ben uh, looks at the statue and says, may your spirit rest. Uh, and again, the statue kind of moves a little bit, and he kind of does a, a double take and, <laughs> and tails it out of there. <laughs> right. I, mean, I don't know if this is actually true. Maybe thinking a little bit too much, uh, it, reading a little bit too much into this, but the way he says, may your spirit finally be at peace, old chief, it makes me, I, I just had a glimmer of a thought, like, do you think that that statue was given to them for protection? I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't have any idea, but uh, you know, I again the 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 next segment is the one that I was most excited about. But I had forgotten how charming this one was, and watching that featurette about the special effects. I mean, everybody who worked on the special effects, there were bumps in the road, uh, especially on some of the other segments. But they were just so pleased with the way that this one turned out, and they should be. Oh yeah, well- I. I, I I love practical effects, and all of the effects in this movie are practical, and if it were made today, especially on a modest budget, it would all be digital, and it would just not have the charm that that this has. It, It just looks great. Well, this was like Greg Nicotero's first rodeo. He and a buddy of his were kind of pulled into this and in a lot of ways were making things up as they went along and trying to figure out these special effects when one of the previous special effects guys wasn't even delivering. And so, you know, they sort of quickly through the production got elevated to being in charge of and supervising mm. uh, and actually making these things happen, especially in, in the raft scene. And, I mean, Greg Nicotero went on from here to do effects for so many films and probably most recently and most famously, The Walking Dead. All of that mm-hmm. is from his shop. And so it really was, as you said earlier, a launching pad for a number of people's careers, not the least of which special effects. And therefore, it's kind of hard to believe that some of these guys, you know, were cutting their teeth on this because it it is still so good and it really holds up. It was also just really cool to see that many of the same people were responsible for the effects on so many movies at this time. Like, yeah. um, I'm pretty sure that uh, Nicotero went directly from working on Evil Dead 2. Uh, Like like they weren't even finished and he left to come work on this. He had also worked on Day of the Dead with Tom Savini. You, You know, there was this handful of guys... And I say guys because they were, they were. men, <laughs> this handful of men who were responsible for so many of the effects from movies that we love. And uh, it, it, it's just it's, it's cool to get to see some of that behind the scenes stuff. And it is. I encourage you to watch, you know, look for those things on YouTube if you are interested, if you're a fan of this movie, um, because it's really neat to see the process. And it's really neat to see the actors, you know, kind of in their makeup, but out of character and um, see how these things were put together. It's, it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, we go back to the animated wraparound, and all we really see in this one is that Billy receives a package. In those old comics, and it wasn't just the horror comics, but in those old comics, you know, in the back, there would be all these ads that you could, like, you know, send in, you know, this little clip from the magazine with a check, and they would send you, it was, you know, it was cheap gag gift type stuff, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I never did. I never. I always wanted to. <laughs> oh, man. The Johnson Smith Company in the back of those magazines and Boys Life, especially at Boys Life magazine because I was a Boy Scout and the uh-huh. Johnson Smith ads were my favorite part of the Boys Life magazine was just to flip to the back and imagine what could I order. Like it would just be all kinds of things like snapping gum and. Exp- exploding cigarettes and right, stuff right. like that. I did order a few times, you know, it'd be like 89 cents and pick three and then $3 for shipping and you'd get something back in the mail. And those were, those were fun times. And they did, they sold <laughs> stuff like Venus fly traps and, you know, the stuff that sounded really exotic and exciting. Uh-huh. Sea monkeys, sea monkeys. Was right. A big one. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. It's funny. Yeah. And, and so, so Billy gets this package and he says that it's uh, a Venus fly trap bulb and he's all excited about it. It's, it's cute. And then the creep introduces the next tale, which is the raft. And this one, for whatever reason, just always stuck with me. And, and I think it's because I really like the water. I've always been a water person. Um, and so, I don't know, just this one spooked me out because um, this was a, a very familiar setting to me. And this one is based on an existing Stephen King story. I think it was in St- in uh, Skeleton Crew, yeah. uh, I think. I think so, too. And I have read it, and the adaptation is very faithful. It's a great story, too. These four young people, college kids, Deke, uh, Laverne, Randy, and Rachel, um, and they're kind of paired up in that way. Deke and Laverne seem like they're kind of a couple, and Randy and Rachel kind of seem like they're kind of a couple. And it's fall, 
but they're headed to a lake 20 minutes from their campus for one last swim before winter. They know of this lake where there's a, they call it a raft. Um, it's really like a small floating dock in the middle of a lake. And they're going to go out there and they know that nobody else is going to be out there because there are only summer homes out there and it's past September. So before it gets too cold, it's already cold. Before it gets too cold, they're going to go out for one last swim. They get there, Deke jumps, you know, strips down to his underwear or Speedo or whatever he's wearing and jumps right in and and uh, Randy follows him and the girls are a little reluctant at first but they go and as they're swimming out to this raft Randy notices a bird like struggling on the surface and then it kind of scream squawks and goes under so he's kind of keeping his eye out over there he notices that there's like this big black <sighs> They refer to it as an oil slick, which it kind of looks like. It also just kind of looks like a big hefty bag. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Floating, floating Especially on the from water. A distance. <laughs> but it, it seems to be approaching. And so he swims to the dock really fast and he's screaming for the girls to hurry. And Laverne really only just makes it. I mean, the whatever this thing is, is inches from her when they pull her up on it. Randy is freaked out from the beginning and says, Looked like it was going after the girls. Oh, come on, Poncho. You said you sobered up, man. It looked like it was going after the girls. No one knows we're here. No one at all. It's such a throwaway line, but I love it. Like, that's so scary. You find yourself in peril, and you just realize offhandedly, nobody knows we're here. Like, if we're in trouble, no one's coming to help. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, it neatly works out. Like, this is, of course, before the age of cell phones. Right. And I said this movie is is not uh, dated, and it still isn't. Because if you're going to go swimming, yeah. you would leave your cell phones at, at the car, probably, or on the beach. You wouldn't be swimming Absolutely. out. Absolutely. It still works. <laughs> so you're still, it does still work. You're still just as isolated. <laughs> it's great. And the, I like this story because it's such a simple concept, and I also like that nothing is ever really explained. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know what this thing is, and we don't either. Randy's kind of freaked out about it, but nobody else is particularly concerned, and, you know, they're smoking joints or whatever and Rachel reaches down and is kind of just kind of running her fingers over the surface of the water over the top of this thing and it shoots up like this black goo shoots up and grabs her arm and pulls her in and pulls her under and then she comes back up and she's completely covered in this slime um, and you can tell that it's eating away at her skin and she's saying it hurts it hurts but there's nothing they can do and it just pulls her under and she's gone and that's just it Again, you can watch stuff about the special effects here. They used like this super slime type stuff, and you know they had a technical name for it, but it's this really viscous, sticky stuff that apparently is a nightmare to get off. Like they said, you almost have to use bleach to to scrub it off because once it's stuck to you, it's just so adhesive you just can't get it off. And um, the 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 girl who uh, you know gets eaten in a very gruesome fashion. It looks great. She kind of looks like the girl on the Evil Dead poster, yes. reaching <laughs> up for help. Except she's covered in this goo. That was actually a stunt person, and uh, I guess it was just a nightmare for her. Not to mention that they really did film this in the fall. Now they were in Arizona, but apparently it was rainy season and. The rain delayed the production, and the temperatures were low, particularly the temperatures of the water. The guy who played Randy apparently almost died of hyperthermia. (laughs) The crew kept wanting to push him to go, and the director was finally like, you know, I actually think we need to get him to a hospital, (laughs) or else we might not be able to get him to finish everything else, and it turned out to be a really good idea. So, it's nuts. They had a lot of problems, I guess, with, um, you know, with the, this is sort of where Nicotero and his uh, guys had to step in because the... Think, yeah, things kind of fell apart. The original special effects guy walked, I think, at this mm-hmm. point, Yeah, because right? he was frustrated because the director didn't want to hear from him anymore. He point, he looked at the others and said, you guys tell me what we need to do. I don't want to hear from you anymore. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny to hear Nicotero and his 
partner talk about this because they're very understanding. You know, they say if we were in his position and somebody yeah. else came and, you know, was overseeing us and overruling us, we probably would have done the same thing. Um, we probably would have left too. So they don't have any hard feelings. But And, and so now they don't know what to do. Deke uh, keeps talking about, you know, maybe we should try to swim for it. Maybe we can out swim it. And they're kind of still debating that when the blob works its way under the raft. And Deke says he's going to do it. He's going he's gonna to swim for it. And he starts to go, but then he starts screaming and the camera, you know, sh- cuts to his feet and the blob is coming up through the planks of the dock and it's got his leg and it continues to kind of work its way up his leg and it pulls him down through the boards as it pulls him down it folds one of his legs up you know onto his torso and just completely pulls him in and the others you know have to keep their feet on the boards away from the cracks between them so it can't get them and it was really cool to hear how they did this too they lifted up the raft and they put these like gutters underneath it and filled the gutters with that black gooey stuff and then they could like push on the gutters in different places to make the stuff ooze up it looks fantastic it looks really good It, it looks organic and it really looks like the thing is moving but it gets him and so the other two are stuck there and they keep watch the thing goes out from under the raft they keep watch and it's nighttime and it goes all through the night and they're super cold and eventually they end up sitting down together and holding each other and uh, eventually they fall asleep not both of them well that's right randy wakes up and he's holding her and he lays her down on the dock and proceeds to molest her yeah (laughs) so uh, i I had forgotten, or maybe I just didn't know when I was a kid. Like, I remember it. Like, I thought they, like, started making out. But no, he just assaults her in her sleep. Yeah, that's a, an odd thing. Like, Randy lives up to his name, right? And and I think that when I watched this as a teenager, I, <laughs> I won't say I understood it more, but I think I was more in the mind of a teenager at that point. I thought it was horrifying, but I'm like, oh, yeah, he sees an opportunity to take advantage of this girl. He just wants to see her boobs. <laughs> it's just so odd. It's very Stephen King, though. He likes to do this kind of thing, I feel like. But yeah, I don't know how I feel about this bit. It's just what I think the reason for it is. And what he basically does is he it, he lays her down on the raft while she's asleep. And while she's laying down on the raft, he like slowly lifts her shirt up, exposes her breasts, kind of runs his face close to her body up there and it looks like he wants to like you know take a lick or a bite or something here and i don't know what he's his end game is because he gets startled before he finishes and he pulls it down but my thought for why this was included is that in these stories usually people get what's coming to them people get what they deserve yeah you know sort of following the horror movie tropes None of these kids really got what they deserve, to be honest. But at least right. for this kid to die, you kind of had to lose a little bit of sympathy for him. And maybe that was the point right. of this, you know, was to lose some sympathy for him. Yeah, because up until now, he really kind of seemed like the hero role. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, as a kid, I don't know if I was desensitized by horror movies or, or what, but, like, I never gave it even a second thought like I thought she might wake up and they'd make out but watching it this time it was a little uncomfortable because she even seems to kind of be protesting even in her sleep I think that's why he pulls her shirt back down is because I think she's moaning like no and there's that like sort of sweet romantic music playing behind it Uh so it's all like a little cringy I think purposefully so maybe right well anyway so she's kind of protesting and 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 moaning but then her eyes open and she realizes and we soon realize that the reason that she's moaning is because she's in pain because the blob has snuck back under and has come up and has gotten is attached to her face um and then it gets all over her face and starts pulling her and she's you know reaching out to randy for help and um he's just standing there in horror and eventually while the blob is occupied he dives into the water and starts swimming for shore and it starts swimming after him 
and there's a great aerial shot where you see him swim through the frame and then you see the blob coming behind him and he gets to shore and he crawls out on the shore about an inch away from the water and turns around and starts taunting the thing is like haha i beat you i don't know what you are but i beat you and then the blob jumps out of the water <laughs> like a wave and engulfs him it's yeah. so crazy <laughs> and i love it because it's unexpected we think he's made it he thinks he's made it and then you know we don't know what this thing is yeah. who's to say it can't come out on land and it just jumps out and grabs him and drags him back in and the camera cuts back to a wider shot with the car in the frame and it pans away from the car to these weeds uh, and you see a sign that says no swimming hilarious i love that segment <laughs> it's i just think it's so good it's a wonderful segment i think it's the best segment of all three it's certainly the one that stuck with me the most as a kid because it just horrified me a the idea that you can be out there stranded and, and really pretty helpless when this unknown thing is coming at you is one thing but b the fact that it systematically picks them off despite their best intentions c that this guy is responsible for getting the girl he's supposed to be protecting killed by an act of pure selfishness was horrifying to mm-hmm. me. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he thinks he's a, he, he's he's won and you kind of want him to win, right? But then that thing swoops over and gets him. And I was impressed with that special effect, too. I was waiting, you know, leading up to it, now that we're watching these with a critical eye, w- leading up to it, I was so excited to see that shot because I remember that shot, but I don't remember it well enough. I just know this was the age before computer effects. So I was really curious to see how they did it. And it's impossible to see how they did it. It's just looks like a mm-hmm. wave of this thing flopping over him. It's really, really good. And uh, then in watching that featurette, they just said that, well, what they basically did was they just made this big folding frame that they attached a a big piece of this monster to. And they, you know, pulled it back and had it on a tripwire so it would spring forward, kind of like a a convertible car top uh, Uh comes forward. And I said, oh, that is so clever and it works so well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's shot really smart. Because it, it's a split second. I mean, you know, it, it jumps out and you see him kind of try to get up to escape it. And it's then like it just kind of envelops fade. him. But it happens so quickly. Uh, it, it looks great. And it has this like sort of perfect ending too. You know, it's an ending with a zinger. Like there's the one bit of the ending which is so cool and frustrating. It's sort of like um, the ruins, you know, where it's like this thing has been there for who knows how long. Right. And it will clearly continue to be there for who knows how long, you know? But it also seems like somebody knows about it because there's a sign. But nature has overtaken that sign, almost like it's it's keeping that going, you know? <laughs> like it's its own uh-huh. protection. It just raises so many questions that, like you said, it's just so great that they don't ever try to explain it. Right. Right, love it. Mm. Cut back to the wraparound. Um, Billy gets chased on his bike by some bullies, and I love the animated parts. I, I, they they remind me they remind me of cartoons from when I was a kid. And these bullies, you know, are are so one note, but they're just gleefully mean and wicked and. This big, fat, tough bully uh, steals Billy's package and throws it on the ground and stomps on it. And then he even pulls out the bulb, the Venus flytrap bulb. And he's like, what you going to do with this? Plant it and grow more pansies like yourself? And I'm immediately thrown back into the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little too well, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, for me, what as a kid watching this too, again, a sign of the times, this was probably the first time I'd ever seen this kind of story in cartoon form. When we were kids, mm-hmm. cartoons were pretty tame. Yeah. Not very violent. And so to see these kids bullying this kid and being mean and sort of the violence that ends up happening in this cartoon was novel for me at the time. And I found the cartoon section almost as scandalous in the fact that it was a scary cartoon, you know? Uh-huh. I loved it. And then we get the last story, um, which is 
The Hitchhiker. And this is a story of a woman na- named Annie, um, a rich lady. She wakes up in bed with a man who it's quickly established is not her husband. In fact, he's a gigolo that she's paying. Yeah. She woke up late and she needs to get home before her husband. Um, and she, it's 20 miles away and she only has seven minutes to get there. So she's racing and she's talking to herself in the car trying to come up with some excuse. I went to see a movie. I went to get laid, George. There's this wonderful guy. He charges $150, but that's for six. Count them, six orgasms. That's, um... And she ends up hitting and presumably killing a hitchhiker. And she stops and she's thrown, but when she sees the headlights of another car approaching, she turns off her lights and takes off. Now, I remember when I was a kid that this was my least favorite one. Mm -hmm. Watching it again, I had more appreciation for it, and I'm not really sure why. Um... But I I did think, ultimately, that this one is actually really scary. And this one is probably most like a Tales from the Crypt episode um, in that you've got somebody who has done something bad who then is punished. More so than the raft, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the thing that... um, I was most interested in finding out about this one was that this woman who's, you know, your typical rich 80s bitch for lack of a better word she was originally supposed to be played by Barbara Eden and <laughs> yeah. I, and Barbara Eden only ended up dropping out because her mother passed away and so she couldn't film it um, but I can't can you imagine Jeannie in this oh role? my gosh it would have been great it would have been great <laughs> I, w- I know I would it'd be really curious but anyway the woman who ends up playing it is Lois Childs who was Holly Goodhead in Moonraker um, so again another you know well-established actress well, and and I'll, I'll say too like as a kid this seemed very adult to me like i had to have my dad explain to me the whole thing about the gigolo and and, and in that case it, it is it's very much like a tales from the crypt episode from hbo because they always seem to insert some of it like some nudity some adult like heavy adult themes into these otherwise you know more traditionally kid fair kind of kind of anthology comic stuff but for me this one has more humor in it it's a lighter tone in a way because, uh, well, she's talking to herself as she's going down the road. And the whole concept of what's going on, is, as we'll explain as, as it continues, is is humorous. It's funny. And I think that's really what sets it apart from the previous two ones, which I sort of feel are pretty dead serious. Chief Woodenhead is just depressing. And, and the raft mm. is pretty much too, you know. Scary. Whereas this one, you're almost laughing by the end of it. And... And that's part of what hooks you in is like, how far is this going to go? You know, because it's like an ongoing gag, basically. It, it It is. And I would agree with you, except for the effects in this one are so good that like, so basically what happens is she's she's feeling guilty or she's trying to decide whether or not she's going to feel guilty. Like she keeps asking herself, can I live with this? Um, and she says, well, you know, I'll just, I'll go home, I'll try to go on with my life, and if I can't live with it, I'll turn myself in later. Um, but what ends up happening is she ends up passing the hitchhiker on the highway again, and she stops the car to make sure that she saw what she really thinks that she saw, and she did, and it's the hitchhiker mangled from being hit, and he knocks on her, went like, you know, jumped pops up at her window and says thanks for the ride lady <laughs> she uh, takes off but he's like holding on to the side of the car and he gets up on top and he's trying to get in the sunroof and he just keeps saying it thanks for the ride lady <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious I mean <laughs> but but what kills me about it is that she keeps like she drives into the forest to try to knock him off and she does and she keeps like hitting him and running him over and every time he just gets more and more gross like and by the end he's 
unrecognizable. Oh. I mean, he's just a bloody blob, right? But he just keeps. Thanks for the ride, lady. Thanks for the ride. Even this guy, I. You showed me a clip where this guy was on like a reunion panel. Tom Wright. Yeah, and I recognized him, and I'm like, why do I recognize him? Well, he's been in a bazillion things, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I recognized him from Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> he was he was the one black girl's dad in Troop Beverly Hills, but he's been in a bazillion oh, things. Oh, yeah, TV and movies all over the place. Uh, again, still working, and um, she finally, after going through like two forests, you know, and, and she at one point she smashed this he's sitting up against a tree and she smashes into him like two or three times like he's just a bloody pulp and she ends she finally gets home she pulls into her garage she's like hysterically laughing crying about all the damage to her car and how she's got a concussion and how much money all of this is gonna cost and her husband's not even home yet <laughs> and her, yeah her husband's not home he's late for the only time ever and she goes to get out of the car she opens the door and the corpse thing slides out from underneath like he's a mechanic <laughs> <laughs> And and looks up at her. Thanks for the ride, lady. And he like gets up in the car. And he's like he's got his face pressed up against hers, and he doesn't even have like a face. It's just like a tongue like rubbing up against her face. And thanks for the ride, lady. <laughs> Those guys called that their Admiral Akbar version of him. <laughs> Because his (laughs) eyes are just bugging out and going different directions, and the tongue's just hanging, and the face is just totally splayed open. (laughs) And it's all a puppet. And he's just rubbing against her for, like, like 15 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like the special effects artists are just enjoying torturing the actor. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's great. I really liked it. I, I... I can see how you, like, it is a running gag, and I can see how it's funny, but the effect is so gross. Like, I still thought it was scary. Mm. So her husband comes home and opens the garage door, and it's filled with exhaust fumes. And he opens the car door, and she's sitting in there dead, and she's holding the hitchhiker's sign. Mm. And and that's that's the end of that one. And then we get the end of the wraparound, which is very satisfying. We cut right back to where we left off, where the bullies are chasing Billy, and he leads them onto this private property that says, you know, no trespassing or whatever, and he leads them into this big clearing, and it looks like, you know, they surround him, and they're going to beat him up, but he's got this sly smile on his face. I really liked that, too. Like, he's supposed to be, like, this innocent kid. He's this little blonde kid, but he's got this really wicked Wicked. smile and smirk. (laughs) Two. Then these giant Venus flytraps pop out and eat all of the bullies, and they get the great big one last. And the great big one, like, the thing gets it in his mouth, and he kind of stands up, you know, like, I don't know, Hercules or something, and is like holding the jaws open, but then they snap down and it <laughs> swallows them. And Billy's just standing there, smiling slyly with his, you know, <laughs> fly traps are all around him they eat meat <laughs> they eat meat <laughs> uh, animated camera pans to the creep who is watching and laughing and he climbs back into the back of his truck it goes back to um live action again tom savini and this you know these prosthetics and he just laughs, and the truck starts driving away with him hanging out the back, and he scatters copies of Creep Show out the back as he's driving away. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so there was a knock at my door right at the very end when the credits started. So I got up, and I I, I got the door and everything, and I, I came back, and I, I clicked the credits back on and thought, you know, I've, I, don't, I don't think I've ever watched the credits before. Maybe there's something at the end or something. And there's not. There's not a, a credit scene or... Or anything, but I was glad I watched it because at the very end of the credits, there's a note. The very last thing you see is this quote from Collier's Magazine from 1949. Yep, did the comic scare. Yeah, it says, Juvenile delinquency is the product of pent-up frustrations stored up 
resentments, and bottled-up fears. It is not the product of cartoons and captions, but the comics are a handy, obvious, uncomplicated scapegoat. If the adults who crusade against them would only get esteemed up over such basic causes of delinquency as parental ignorance, indifference, and cruelty, they might discover that comic books are no more a menace than Treasure Island or Jack the Giant Killer. Um, And I just... I'd never seen that on here before, mm. and I love it, and I especially love that it's a quote from 1949, right? because this debate this debate was still going on in the 80s, and to some extent, it's still going on now. Yeah. Like, people are so desperate to find a root cause for the bad behavior of young people, and things like comics, or horror movies, or rock and roll music, or whatever, are easy scapegoats. And artists have had to fight this battle for decades, and it's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 now you know it's it's video games. You know it's violent video games that inspire all of these you know terrible things, and it's not. Like I, I think <laughs> that time has pretty clearly shown that it's not uh, any one particular thing. At least not the things that are most commonly blamed. I just thought that was really. Uh, Really interesting. Yeah, it was cool. And it, t- it ties in well, obviously, with the theme of Creep Show because it's based on those comics. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about Tales from the Crypt, the whole comics code, you know, situation. Just part of the never ending cycle. It, it just keep revisiting the same argument over and over and over again. Uh huh. I, I just love, I love this movie. I really do. I did too. I loved it just as much this time around as I always did. Like I said, I really like the first one better because there's a couple more stories. It has some bigger stars, and I feel like the stories are tighter and they pack some punch. Um, these stories pack punch, and they, they do go by really quickly. I f- do feel like the last one was stretched out a little bit. I, I understand they were going for particular pacing, and, you know, I did feel like as tight as the other ones were, you know, the last one became such a running gag that it's like, I get the gag, I get the gag, let's get to the end, let's see eventually, you know, how this is going to work out, because we've figured out this guy isn't going to die, he's just going to get messier and messier, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was my only, that's that's probably why I think the third one is the weakest, even though it's a good one, compared to the other two, but I can see kind of why they ordered things in the way that they did. So it, it mm-hmm. it's a shame that the other two said that they had planned for one reason or another i think one was budgetary reasons or maybe both were budgetary reasons uh they didn't make it into the movie one of those ended up in another movie i believe in cat's eye no it was um uh, tales from the dark side tales from the dark side the movie or just an episode yep okay the the movie uh, the cat from hell and the other mm-hmm. one um apparently not too long ago somebody had a kickstarter going to try to actually film it I don't know if that ever ended. It was something about pinball, pinball something or other. No, it's it's uh it was it's about uh, ghostly rival bowling teams. Oh, pins! <laughs> yeah, not pinball. It's pins something, whatever. That sounded weird. I read a little. Yeah, I know. Of that. I'm like what? <laughs> that would have changed the tone of this movie quite a bit. Yeah, I think that technically. There is a Creep Show three and maybe even a Creep Show four, but King and Romero I don't think had anything to do with them and by all accounts they're really bad. I don't think I've seen them. I think they're pretty obscure. Um but Shudder right now is running a creep show streaming series. Have you seen it? I've watched a few of them. I haven't watched many of them. There, there's been a couple of seasons and a couple of holiday specials, and the ones that I've watched uh, are creative. One of the ones that I watched was based on a Stephen King story about this kid who has to get his dad. He has to go buy his dad beer every day, and it turns out that his dad is turning into like this monster that ends up kind of taking over the world. I remember reading that story, the Stephen King story, and then so I was uh, pleased to see it when I watched that episode. It's pretty good, and I think that uh, it's been pretty well received critically, and it seems like it's keeping going and not slowing down. And, And that's great, because I really do love anthology horror. I love these short little one-off stories for somebody like me with a short attention span they're perfect you know it's you can sit down and and get a whole story in like half an hour that's why i like reading short stories too i'm a big fan of short story anthologies just to be able to sit down and get a whole story in a short amount of time 
Um, I really like it. So I hope that people keep making them, and I think they will. In fact, we see more and more anthologies, especially around the holidays every year. Mm. Um, and we've and we've done several Halloween and Christmas anthologies, and we've done other anthologies too. And we're still going to be back doing a couple more this month. It's funny, you know, we've kind of got planned kind of nebulously we have planned uh, what we're going to do but just you know in thinking about it over the last couple weeks and thinking about it yesterday there are so many you know and and so many good ones and so many bad ones but we could probably do six months of anthology films if we wanted to because there are so many Um, but I really like them and I hope that we continue to see them yeah me too me too well, thank you for listening to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Of course, uh, if you enjoy this episode, let us know. If you have any insight into this movie that we missed, we'd love to hear it. If you want to hear our other stuff, all you need to do is Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw podcast, and you'll find us all over the place. Anywhere where you can find streaming podcasts, you'll find us there. We'll be back, like I said, for the next couple of weeks with a couple more horror anthologies for you. But until that time, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Ah, ah, ah.